Welcome to TSG Talk. TSG Talk aims to contribute positively towards the care of an injured casualty or vulnerable patient. If your goal is to maximise your input for the people you care for, then TSG Talk is for you. Our podcast will interview colleagues who are at the cutting edge of their professions. Often they're involved in creating solutions for areas that historically have proven difficult or have a wealth of experience in a particular complex response. Each podcast will provide unique, engaging content. At TSG Associates, we will always strive to ensure our solutions are ahead of the curve and positively impact on the quest for prioritising survival and minimising suffering. We believe TSG Talk will complement our vision and provide a platform to enhance your response. It is my pleasure to now pass you across to our host, Senior Partner at TSG, Colin Smart. Good evening and welcome to the latest edition of TSG Talk, delivering tactical trauma care training in Ukraine. For almost a year, Ukraine have been defending their homeland in a nationwide high-intensity war against Russia. We have watched in admiration of the courage, intelligence and conviction the Ukrainian people have applied to repel the invasion. The war has produced huge numbers of casualties. How they are cared for at a point of injury will often dictate the chances of survival. To maximise this care, personnel must be trained in large numbers and to a high standard. So how does this happen? Our guest tonight, Dr Johan Borg, has led multiple training teams into Ukraine, and we're privileged tonight to learn from his experience. So good evening, Johan. It's excellent to see you. How, how are you this evening? Uh, good evening, Colin. Thank you very much. I'm fine, thanks. It's a great pleasure to be here. Fantastic. And as uh, first of all, thank you so much for giving your time. I know you're, you're incredibly busy. Um, so we really appreciate you uh, spending the time with us to just, just to really go over some of the experiences you've had with your with your work in Ukraine. Just just before we actually um, go into the subject, could you just give our listeners um, just a little bit of background behind you know, your, your, your occupational history and, and what, what you've been involved in? All right. So uh, I'm a medical doctor at the Swedish Civil Contingencies Agency. Uh, we are an, a government agency dealing with emergency preparedness. Uh, we also do a lot of international work, um, both humanitarian and peace support operations. And I'm with the peace support operation division. Uh, before starting my work here, I was uh, an officer for my whole life. I used to be a fighter pilot in the Air Force and a full-time survival instructor in the Air Force. So that, that's that's quite a diverse um, career. So from fighter pilot to doctor, um, it's quite quite a jump. <laughs> it is, but still, it's like a way of trying to do something good for for your country and try to contribute any way you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's 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 a fascinating history. So, could you just give us a? I mean, we we see a lot of information about the war in Ukraine coming in from the media, but could could you just try and explain Explain from what you've seen the sort of extent of what's going on and maybe some of the dynamics around what's what, what you've seen in Ukraine at the moment. Just just to try and give us a feel for what it's actually like on the ground where where, where you've been working. Yeah, I've, I've been to several conflict zones, uh, both in Africa and the Middle East. Um, and what strikes me about Ukraine is that it's, it's total war. It's like the whole society is involved in this war. I mean, we did training in a school and the kids, like eight-year-old kids, they have grab bags in their classrooms that they bring to the shelter when the air alarm goes off. And Russia is hitting everything. They're hitting hospitals, schools, 
universities, population centers, everything. It's not like a war between armists. It's uh, being in Ukraine. It's it's total war. Yeah. So you, yeah. I suppose what you say from that is it's the whole population that's actually been been mobilized to to to, to fight against to fight against the invasion. Yeah, and they are they are an in, incredible people, uh, and and they are they are not giving up. Most, yeah, I think like a lot of a lot of don't even have power now, and the winter is coming, but still they're not giving up. Yeah, and, and I think that's what we can see the, the the feedback from the media that that we're obviously getting across in the UK that they're incredibly positive um, and 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 hugely resilient in, in how they've responded to to this. Um, and, and I think so, there's so much credit due to just how they've responded um, and, and how, how they're resisting as a population. As you say, it is absolute total, total war. Um, so the area that you've been involved with is um, obviously helping them with training on, on tactical trauma care. Could, could you maybe just give us a, a little bit of, a, of an idea? What, what's, what, what does that programme involve? What's the sort of skills you're trying to teach? What's the... What's the student body you've got? What, could, could you give us a little bit of background behind what, what you've been involved in and more specifically to the role you, that you're doing? Yeah, so in the beginning of the war, my government agency was contacted by an NGO in Ukraine. Um, they consisted of former mountain rescue personnel, and now they changed their whole lives and devoted their lives to training people in basic tactical medicine. Uh, both civilians and soldiers and other like everyone who wanted. So when the war started, they, they went to cities really close to the front, uh, just gathered everyone in the village that wanted training and provided training. And now they're traveling all over Ukraine, providing this training. And um, they realized that they needed updated training in, in like the latest version of TCCC, Tactical Combat Casualty Care or Tech, Tactical Emergency Casualty Care. Um, and I was one of the founding members of TCCC in, in Sweden. Uh, so when this ended up in, in, in my desk, it was like actually good fit. People might think that mountain rescue, what are they doing, like teaching tactical medicine? But if you think about it, it's not that different because you go to somewhere where the scene is not safe. You provide basic life-saving care, stabilize the patients and bring them to the next level of care. It's, it's basically the same thing. Yeah, and I suppose the people you've got doing it are with with the mountain rescue background. They're very dynamic. Got the ability to adapt. You've probably got quite quite good characters just delivering it with that ability. You know that ability to think on the feet because of the way they've operated outdoors. So it's probably quite a good fit, I would think. And on getting I, I, this, it's excellent, excellent, excellent fit. So what we decided to do is the, so they wanted to train instructors. And we think it was a good idea to train instructors and then the instructors train the Ukrainian population. So we've been uh, going into Ukraine three times by now, delivering a total of nine courses on different levels. And I'd say we'd have not really 100, maybe 80, 90 students. And these students have, have gone on to become instructors and they have by now taught over 16,000 people in Ukraine. In Ukraine. That's, that's so if you, achievement, 16,000. It, it is. So, so if you teach 16,000 people, both people living close to the front and in population centers that are constantly under attack, you, you will get results. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the things I mentioned on the, on the introduction. It's not just training the skills to a higher level. 
I think because we've got the whole population that's mobilised, and as you, you said in the introduction, it's it's, it's total war. The, the sheer volume of people to to be trained in this, to, to make an impact, has got to be huge. So that, that's, that's a large dynamic in working out how to get the maximum out of it. Uh, but the fact that, I mean, the 16,000, I would think that's been done probably in, in six, nine months, you know. Yeah, it's great. It's hugely impressive. Now, what's also impressive is that they have managed to to fundraise and get donations for IFACs, individual first aid kits, for all these 16,000 people. Because there is, it's like, it's no use if you become really, really good at using a tourniquet, but you don't have a tourniquet. And it's no use giving someone a tourniquet if they don't know how to use it. So what they do is they teach people and at the end of the training, they get sent away with a first aid kit that they can like carry on them or put on like in the kitchen or whatever. So it's both training and material that these people we were working with to deliver to the population. And I was going to say that in itself is quite a logistics challenge. Sixteen thousand IVAC kits—it's it's not insignificant. Yeah, and that has to get into Ukraine somehow. So that's that's another part of their operation—the whole logistics thing. And you don't want to put like sixteen thousand IVACs in one warehouse either, because if mm -hmm. that gets hit by a cruise missile, then then it's all gone. Yeah, no, that, that, that's an interesting dynamic. And I suppose one we don't think about too much in, when we're, we would sort of supply IVACs to our militaries, which are, you know, in a country that's not getting hit by any any munitions. But you're absolutely right. If you get one warehouse with all your medical equipment in it, then that's it gone. So there's got to be that that resilience in, in how you position these critical stores, which is something that's quite, I find quite interesting how, how you build that, that model in. Because that's um, certainly... I mean, 16,000 IVACs is, is factory level production. So it, it's certainly not insignificant. And I suppose you've got to continue that going as you continue to train people as well. So that's quite a large manufacturing undertaking to to to, to really produce and the volumes you need and, and the quality that you need as well. So that that's 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 very interesting. Um what what's the what, with with the war being into almost a year now, is there any specific skills that have come out from this? Um is, do we still find it's a hemorrhage control we're focusing on, or is, or is there any sort of mechanisms of injury that that's come out which has maybe surprised you a little bit that's come out from the war? Any anything that you can that you can think of? No, I think it's the same as as usual. It's like massive hemorrhage, keeping the airway open and providing hypothermia, especially because Ukraine gets cold in the winter. So um, since these people are mountain rescue professionals from the beginning, they are really good at hypothermia prevention and they really stress it. Uh, for all of their students, which I think is going to be crucial in the coming months. No, and I think that's really important because, um, I mean, we, we've talked about this in the past, about the, the link with hypothermia and trauma and, and why it's so important. Um, and, and, you know, I think it correctly addressed hypothermia as early as possible can actually give you those few percentages to increase survival in the trauma patient. So I think that's, it. I suppose sometimes when you see it taught, it, it can almost be the poor relation to, to the hemorrhage control. Um, but I think being able to pull those things closely together, it, it all links really to to that in enhancing survival. So it's interesting that you've got hypothermia so, so high up in in the training. Um, one of the things I picked up um, when we were talking a couple of weeks ago, when when I went when I was visiting Sweden and, and we met up, was you mentioned that the the shrapnel wounds that you were finding from some of the artillery were a lot bigger than you would normally expect. Could you could you just expand on that a little bit and see? Yeah, because I, I, I've, I've seen a lot of 
a lot of pictures uh, and they've told a lot of, of their experiences. And we try to make the training as realistic as possible for their environment, okay? Um, so there is like huge substance defects in, in, in the injury patterns. So I've been to both Iraq and Afghanistan and other places, Somalia, for example, and, and you see a lot of gunshots and you see shrapnel and you see people bleeding, but uh, it kind of surprised me in Ukraine how how much how much how big parts of the body actually gets lost when you get hit by by artillery fire uh, on the scale that they are experiencing right now. Right. Okay. Now that that's quite interesting. Does I mean with with the the shrapnel injuries being a, a lot larger than than you've normally seen in, in previous conflicts? Does does that change the how, how you would go through the normal training, like packing a wound? Um, or just the volume of equipment you would need to, to bring in to do that. Does, has that changed any of your thoughts, how you approach a wound like that at all? Yeah, right now there aren't any wound packing simulators that are big enough. So okay. we're actually having some manufactured um, that we're going to bring <laughs> with us next time. Uh, but you're going to go through a lot more packing material, even if if you maybe not need like huge amounts of hemostatic gauze, you will need something to to fill up the wound cavity with, and also the the aftercare, like in the long term with with infections and, and problems like that, will, will probably be bigger in this kind of conflict that, than than what we've previously seen. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting dynamic because you say with with such large shrapnel wounds, the and again going back to I suppose the logistics of supplying the equipment to to pack a large. Uh, shrapnel flesh wound is, is going to use a huge amount of consumables yeah. and then as to say the follow-on from that if you're looking at the prolonged field care and an extended evacuation just as opposed to sheer volume on things like your antibiotics your, your, yeah. your wound cleaning equipment that's all got to have really interesting dynamics in in, in the medical supply chain uh, because of a yeah. slightly different um, mechanism not mechanisms of the injury but uh, the outcome of a of a slightly different mechanism creating the the, the different shrapnel wounds i find that quite fascinating how certain differences can can filter all the way through the system um yeah and can change the response it's um it's, it's, it's interesting to hear that um the the students that you're teaching could you just tell me a little bit about, about their background and I suppose a little bit when you teach them, what's their sort of uptake on on applying this this training? Yeah, so some of them are like purely civilians, and they just want to help out their communities. Some of them are uh, in the military or in the police, uh, and they have been nominated to be a medic. And right now in Ukraine, uh, it's kind of like, okay, so you've done one semester of medical school. Congratulations, you're a medic. Or you used to work at the veterinarian clinic, of course, you're a medic. Or you used to be a dentist, medic. Uh, but but right now, they're at the point that, like, you look like a medic, Colin. Are you afraid of blood? No, okay, not afraid of blood, you're a medic. You're a medic. Um, so so the, the level of, of, of training that I've had previously varies enormously. But we've trained, like, rock musicians, uh, cooks, uh, housewives. IT people, like everyone. And this is just like ordinary people that stand up and say, I want to make a difference and I want to I want to help. Yeah, so again, I suppose this goes back to what you were saying in the beginning, the, the, the total war is that we're not just training an army here, we're training a population um, exactly. in, in, in trauma response. Um, exactly. well, I, I, again, I suppose it might be a slightly difficult question to answer, but 
what's it like to to train a mobilized population? Because it's, it is something. Because most wars, and in, in, in certainly in my lifetime, has been an army fighting an army, or maybe an army of occupation. Um, and I, I, I don't think I've certainly come across the experience of having to teach a population um, how to how to to to, to assist defending the country and, and applying medical care. Did, what was the sort? What was it like to teach them? Is is there a certain do you feel the energy of them trying to input into the country? It'd just be interested to feel what's the dynamic like when, when you're teaching a population, it's, it's, it's principally mobilized. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've been doing like with the military, I've been both in, in the Middle East and in Afghanistan and also in Somalia. My job was to, to teach locals and they weren't really super motivated all the time, but these people in Ukraine, they are. Um, at lunch, one last course we ran at lunch, I asked one of the students sitting at my table, so how did you decide to become a combat medic? And she's like, yeah, my boyfriend died in June. And, and I was like, mm, okay. And it was like a bit of an embarrassing silence. And then another guy at the table, another student asked, oh, where did he, uh, where did he uh, fall? And she said, maybe Maripool. I don't know. They haven't found the body. So she decided to, to try to help others because someone couldn't help her boyfriend and now she's a combat medic and, and the the determination that they show is is amazing i've never had students this motivated we had we usually run scenarios at the end of each day and the second day of one course we told everyone okay so please don't tell anyone about the scenarios you had yesterday because we're also going to switch up scenarios and they're like no we we had a ukrainian debrief I was like, what's the Ukrainian debrief? And they, after class, they go to dinner with us, the instructors, and then they spend two or three more hours practicing everything they learned during the day. Oh. So everyone already knew all the scenarios because they ran through them again, just to make sure they they learn as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, certainly from an instructor's point of view, that must be so rewarding just to, to have that sheer, sheer enthusiasm and feedback and desire to learn. Um, just, I think I've, I've also, when I'm instructing, if, if you can get that dynamic with the class with the feedback, it's you always feel quite quite empowered from what you're trying to get across. But this, I, I would think, from an instructor's point of view, when you're getting this feedback, this is probably another level um, that, that you must be an experience and sheer desire to, to get more information to them uh, by the sounds of it. Yeah. And also, they like as in any war, there are a lot of casualties among medical professionals. And, and in Ukraine, it's over 50% of, of the medics in some units uh, have died. So we always have lunch and, and often also dinner together with our students. And sitting at a dinner table with your students and having a look around uh, at all their faces and realize that if I come back in a half year, half of these people will, will be dead. Uh, and, and then they go back to practicing after dinner and I go back like preparing to the best of my ability for next day to give them the best possible training because they deserve it. Yeah, I, I mean, and, and I think just to say, I, I know when I listened to you talk a couple of weeks ago on, on, on my visit, and just just when you, you listen to the feedback that students are getting, but then you're right when you hear about the attritional rates and, and the reality of what they're dealing with, um, I think that that's the energy it must be giving you to, to, to go that extra mile to get this information across must be a huge driver. Um, because I, certainly what struck me listening to the, the talk that you gave on it was, was 
was how intense and real the scenario is and, and how, how attritional it is on just the number of people that are dying at, at, at a medical level, you know, at, from a medical personnel level. It was, was huge. It was certainly, it certainly uh, struck home to me how, how, how severe the, the scenario is you're dealing with. So, um, again, we can, I suppose, only thank you for the input you're putting into the, the, these people in this community to, 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 to make, them, make them more resilient. Um, but just just moving on from that, really, um, I always find um, if people learn very well from stories that come out of uh, dealing with with unique events. Is, is there any particular events come out or any experience you've got from this that you think it would be worth reviewing with with the listeners that that you've learned something maybe a little bit specific from from what you've been doing, good good or bad, um, that, that that could help people maybe prepare in the future if they have to do. Similar, similar types of operations. One of the things I love about teaching is that I also learn so much. Uh, and I've learned both on like a large organizational skill uh, level, some, some skills that we need to, like some, some things we need to do differently in, in my country. Uh, and one of them is this thing with the Red Cross. So we, we think and hope that the Red Cross, everything clearly marked, will protect us. Um, it's been very, very obvious since I started working in Ukraine that it will not. Actually, the Russians are specifically targeting anything medical. Uh, ambulances, people, like supplies, everything. Uh, and I don't know if you remember Anastasia, one of my Ukrainian colleagues, who's a female, really, really good instructor, really, really good medic. Um, she and all the other female medics they they know like every medic that gets captured by the russian they get tortured and killed and they know that if you're a woman and a medic you will be raped and raped and raped and tortured and killed so we we need to move away from this notion that the red cross will protect us because it, it in in ukraine it doesn't it, okay it makes them a target yeah and I, I, again i remember that being mentioned in, in, the, in the lecture that you were given and I think it is important because we often, as medics, we we believe in, I suppose, a code before we go into these war zones. But it, it sounds like settling with the the war at the moment that that it, the, any sort of code of the rules of war has just gone by the sounds of it. That's it just doesn't yeah. exist anymore. It, it sounds like it's 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 a absolutely brutal uh, confrontation where the, the rules have just gone out the window. Would would that be a fair reflection of of how you would describe it? I, I totally, totally agree, Colin. It's exactly like that, um, and it's uh, it's horrendous and it's it's sad, but it's it's the reality. And all these people that I train when I come there, they they know all this much better than I know, but they still want volunteer to do it. So they they choose to be a medic or a medical trainer, even if they know it's going to be sad and lonely and hard and incredibly dangerous but they still they still do it yeah it says so much for their motivation isn't it that's there they've they've, they've not been beaten by by the war they, they seem to be actually in their motivation i don't know if it's a, it's increased because it was probably very high from the beginning but they're not taking a step backwards in, in what they're trying to do that's the feeling i was getting from it they're they're highly motivated incredibly brave but hugely yeah. committed to, to to defeating and, and winning this war. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think I think what I got from that is it, certainly in this conflict that the rules are broken down. Um, 
and there there are no rules. So don't try and get protected by your guide cross because at this point it's going to do you more damage. And if you yep. think it's going to protect you, you've you've actually letting your guard down to, to allow that to yep. happen. Yeah, I mean, as I say, we, we learn from stories. That's probably not one of the nicest stories to learn from, but I think it's it's an important learning point. Yeah. And another thing that I would like to to stress, if if someone else listening to this ever find themselves in a situation where they want to do something similar, uh, I didn't mention it, but I also do some consulting for the UN uh, with their first responder program. And I read a report from some of my colleagues from the United Nations that they went into Kiev to provide partly medical training. And they wrote the report saying that uh, we cannot conduct training inside Ukraine. You have to take people out to Poland and they have to train in Poland because it's it's like too dangerous and air attacks going on. Uh, the way we go around this, and now I'm uh, afraid I'm going to be a little bit vague, um, we do not go into like the center of Kiev and make a base in the government quarters where like missiles strike all the time. We try to find places like out in the countryside, an old school, uh, like a communal hall or something that is very unlikely to be a target of any kind of cruise missile attack. So like set up a base in a safe house somewhere around like in the middle of nowhere and conduct training there because that's much safer. Yeah, so suppose what you're trying to do is almost um, become, go do your training unnoticed. Um, I suppose to say this is this is the center of excellence. That's not going to exist. You, you, you've got to blend, or if you don't blend, bad things are going to happen by the sounds of it. And that, that, yep. that's, that, that's very interesting. I mean, how, how do you find it when, if, if you're working in these uh, very ad hoc scenarios, um, how, how do you find actually doing the training? Obviously, you've got limited utilities, uh, limited space to carry your equipment. Um, is there any specific challenges that you get when you're you, you're on a very uh, mobile uh, and, and, and um, very resource limited environment that you work in? And any any challenges you get from from operating like that at all? That, and, and again, if you have got them, it's any way you've overcome those challenges. Yeah, of course, power is a problem, uh, especially now when it gets dark really really early. So um, our counterparts, they are very used to this. So they have like battery powered lamps. Uh, they have a, a computer and a TV that runs off battery. So you can still like show movies and PowerPoints or what whatnot, but you just run it, run it, run it off a big battery. And we also packed a, a training bag for going into the shelter because like every now and then there is an air raid alarm. You have to go to shelter and hopefully we can still train in the shelter. The quality, of course, will go down, uh, especially due to space constraint, I would say. It's it's hard to like run skill stations in a bomb shelter uh, because like it will be noisy and people will overhear each other. But you can, you're still able to train. You, you're not just sitting there waiting for the all clear. You can still do something, uh, especially if you have like a bag prepared so everyone gets their protective equipment, the grab bags, and then you get the shelter training bag, and then you go down to shelter and continue training, basically. So I suppose what you're saying there is never waste a minute of time because that time is training time, and then training time is valuable. So just because you're in an area shelter doesn't mean to say you should just stop training. Um, exactly. Because I think what I'm picking up here is that um, it, it's getting those minutes of training and hours of training in front of people as much as possible, and we, we cannot 
slack off for any reason just because it's not that easy. Um, so being able to adapt, take a smaller bag down, still continue the training. Um, that's it's it's maximizing it's maximizing the effect of what you do all the time. Um, and yeah. not accept and not accepting if it's difficult, we won't do it. Accepting if it's difficult, we'll, we, we'll adapt. Which is something I think that's probably where the mountain uh, rescue people and uh, adventure instructors come in really well because I think they'll probably adapt quite well to that. So almost changing the dynamic risk assessment and saying, okay, that's a different thing, but this is what we do in outdoors all the time when it goes wrong. Okay, let, let's let's change this around. Exactly, and and I mean our students don't mind. It's like. Okay, we don't have any lights. We'll work with headlamps, but that's good because we normally work with headlamps, right? So, yeah. oh, we have to work in body armor, but we normally work in body armor. So, so you've already set the scenario up, to be honest. So they're, they're making it yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like yeah. it's it's their day to day life, basically. That's absolutely fascinating. If um, if you were if somebody was looking to get involved in what you're doing. Um, and, and maybe trying to provide some support to Ukraine or, or maybe looking to maybe become somebody you could, you could put some training into Ukraine. Is there any sort of tips you could give them, maybe just a couple of tips to, that would help them want to consider if they would be the right person to do this and if they think they would be the right person, what could they maybe do to prepare themselves so they can actually be of benefit to to the organisation, or, or sorry, to, to, to the country? Anything you can think of to, to help with that? Interesting question. I think that all sorts of like, whether it's like going to war zone or going on a humanitarian mission, you have to be prepared not to be a burden to their society. So um, you can't show up without food and without water and suppose that people will like give you food and water and a warm sleeping bag. I mean, we we cannot take from their resources. So we have to be extremely self-sufficient we stick to the TCCC and the tech guidelines and their way of training. That way it's interoperable. If we don't, if they get training for someone else who's also TCCC or tech instructor, the training will be equivalent. If someone else sends IFACs that adhere to the TCCC or tech protocols, it will be interoperable. Um, so instead of like inventing your own version of something try to stick something to something that is like interoperable and already existing in in the rest of the world i think that's um, that's good no i think the, the those are really excellent points what, what i'm really i think i'm picking up so far from what you've been saying um is the circumstances that you've been training in is that you are working in total war with with the rules of change you, you, you do not have this protective red cross around you that, that will help you. So there's a complete, your risk assessment says there's a complete change of rules. Therefore, we have to adapt. To, to make this efficient, you've, you've, I think um, what I'm picking up, you've got to be able to train massive volumes of people. And to do that, the training the trainers to, to pass that on is probably the best way to do that because yeah. that gets the volume. Yeah. And, and the fact it was in 16,000 people so far is, is an yeah. impressive impressive number. And I mean, I mean we, we we train people most of the people we train they they speak English to some extent sometimes we have to work with translators and if you're I'm I'm used to working through translators um, some of the instructors maybe are not but they will get really good at it really quick um, but then the people we teach to be instructors they can then teach other people in Ukrainian which makes it much easier to, to get the yeah. message across. I think that that makes a lot of sense. What I found really interesting was that was the two points you brought out. There was the self sufficiency. I, th I think anybody 
I talk to who works in remote locations and are providing some form of uh, humanitarian assistance or aid. And I suppose going back to a little bit of my own experience is this self-sufficiency not to become the burden. Don't go there because you want the experience. Go there because you know what your input is going to be is positive and you will take nothing out of the, the, the community for, for you to operate. And, and I think thinking how you are going to be self-sufficient will take a bit of time because the, this, there's various levels to being self-sufficient. Um, so I think that's a really important point for anybody who wants to go into this type of environment. What would you have to do to be self-sufficient, both in your knowledge and your equipment and, and your, your ongoing logistics? Because ultimately, yeah. you need resupply, so how are you going to do that? Um, yeah. So I think there's a lot there to think about for anybody deploying. I found it really interesting about teaching to a standard, um, because you can imagine if a lot of people are coming in from different organisations, if we get, if we taught 20 different ways to do things, yeah. we're not getting the standard. Um, and I think understanding if you were to deploy, what, what standard are you teaching to? Obviously, you're teaching to the TCCC, which makes a huge amount of sense. But I think yeah. understanding the standard that is required and, and sticking with that is, is hugely important as well. So I think those are some really excellent points that, you know, if somebody was considering it, I, th I think if, if they hang their hat on a couple of those things, it'll really get them thinking about what, what we're trying to do here. And, and if I am going to make that decision, then am I going to be, is it going to be positive input? And if it is going to be positive, what is what actually do I have to teach to what standard? Um, so yep. those, those, yep. are, those are excellent points. I think the teaching to standard is really important. And I also think it's really important to teach the basics to perfection in an extreme environment. I would mm -hmm. much rather have my students be really good at five things than being mm -hmm. ah, uh, semi-good at 10 things. Because like yeah. it's the basics to perfection that actually makes a big difference. Like really good at stopping bleeding, really good at hypothermia. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that. And um, throughout all of TSG talks, and uh, we, we we've got got quite a breadth of experience of people we talk to now. And this is one area that comes through again and again and again is be very very good at your basics. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, be per not just be very good, be perfect at your basics. Because that is the thing that underlies everything else. And I suppose the other thing I get from is, is make sure there's an outcome to everything you're teaching, isn't there? You know, why, why are we teaching these things? Because yep. if we do this, there's a genuine outcome and improving survivability and minimizing suffering. So I think being able to justify what we're doing through the TCCC guidelines is, is really important as well. Yeah, because they, they are evidence-based. Evidence so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're not just saying, I think this is a good idea. Here's your evidence. We know this works, maybe slight adaptions, you know, with, with the larger shrapnel wounds that we find then, but we can take the principles and still apply them and maybe teach five really good skills really well. And that's what's going to get applied on the ground. And we know the outcome from that through, through good evidence and experience is, is going to really make a difference. So I think this teaching to standard is probably the biggest thing I would push to anybody who's, who's thinking about doing this. What standard are you expected to teach to? Yeah. And, and make sure you understand yeah. that and, and deliver it so it's appropriate to the, the, the role, role people are, are having to achieve when, when, when they're on the ground. If, if people want to get involved or really want to provide some assistance in any way, whether it's donations, um, maybe some adding some knowledge into the whole scenario, is, is there any points of contact that... They, they can talk to just just to really you know provide any assistance at any level would, would you say there's any entry points we can say i would like to help maybe give a donation supply some equipment um maybe possibly get involved it's any any 
organizations that you would recommend that people could 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 talk to at all? Yeah, I I think that this is a really good question because I think that Lviv is in the west of of Ukraine, close to Poland, and and I've I've done hospital assessments in Lviv where there's like it's like, you know, that scene in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's like boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of medical equipment, but it's not getting to where it needs to be. So I think that after the war is over, they will find a lot of really good medical equipment, like in a storage unit somewhere. So I think that whatever, whatever you want to contribute, make sure it gets to where it's needed instead of like going into a black hole. So we, we've donated a fire truck and ambulance and we actually drove this fire truck to the fire station whose fire truck like got lost uh, mm -hmm. in an attack right. earlier and just gave them the fire truck because now we know that that fire truck is not standing in a warehouse in Lviv somewhere. It's like two hours after we give them the keys, they're out putting out fires. Mm -hmm. So wh whatever um, you choose to do, if you want to contribute somehow, try to get it to, to the as close to the end users as possible, I would say. Yeah, no, I think that that's uh, that's that that's a really good point. Um, just just before we summarise the the whole talk, and it's been absolutely fascinating learning learning from the experiences from from you tonight. Well, one one question we ask everybody, and it always gets the the grey cells going, um, was um, if you were to pick one piece of medical equipment that you would always take with you when you deployed, um, what what do you think it would be? Oh, I was I was afraid of this question. So <laughs> everybody is. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, I I think that gear is kind of important because there are a lot of things that we cannot control. We cannot control the number of casualties we get. We cannot control when we get them. We cannot control if they have injuries that we feel comfortable dealing with. We can't control whether we've had enough sleep, enough food. Uh, we often can't even get the amount of training that we would like. Uh, but we can make a difference in like prepping our gear. Don't just bring a stethoscope, bring the best stethoscope you have. Don't just bring a trauma shears, bring the best trauma shears it, that you can find. So there are a couple of things that I um, normally have at least two of like one on my person and one in my medical bag. And that's usually tape. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a good trauma share. It's a good pen. I like Sharpie pens. Uh, and if if you have like lightly skinned color, uh, like, like people with light skin color, you can write with the black one. And if I'm in Africa or somewhere else where people have darker skins, I usually use the silver Sharpie. I usually carry uh, two pulse oximeters, like one on my body and one in my medical bag and two flashlights, one on my body and one in my medical bag. But of, of so these are the equipment that I, I normally carry more than one of for redundancy. and the thing that I would say is hardest to improvise and most useful now in Ukraine in the winter would probably be a good headlamp with lithium batteries. I don't know if that qualifies as medical equipment, but that's, it, that's my answer. It certainly does. And it's, it's interesting you say that. Um, I've uh, got a, a former colleague uh, that was, I was in the military with, and he was the medic um, who responded to when the Taliban bombed the G4S compound in Afghanistan, which is about a 400-pound um, vehicle bomb, obviously caused a huge amount of damage. Um, Chris, my colleague, um, was basically, all his medical stores got blown up. I mean, it was just everything that could wrong went wrong. Um, and talking to Chris about his experiences, which, which 
it's a stunning presentation he can give about how he coped with what he had. But he says the one thing he now carries with him everywhere is a light source. Yep. Because he says, I had a tiny light source with me and that allowed me to function. Um, so I would say absolutely the headlamp um, would, would qualify as, because without, without it in the dark, and most things happen in the dark, um, you, you really can't do anything. So we, we will absolutely allow you to have a headlamp as, um, as a piece of medical equipment. It's, it's a fascinating question. We often find people are split into two areas. They either take equipment or they take knowledge. Um, so some people say they will take a book or, or access to information. And there's another group of people, and there's no right or wrong, will say they will take a, a physical piece of equipment. So it's, it's quite interesting when you hear how people assess and um, analyse really what it is they're taking and why they would take it. It's uh, it's, it's a fascinating question. And uh, everybody looks at and smiles and thinks, this is a difficult question. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> so so that's, uh, that's fantastic. So... It's been absolutely wonderful talking tonight. I've learned a lot from from the experiences that you've you've got, and I suppose if I was to summarise, it's that I think to understand is what we're seeing in Ukraine is absolute total war, where there are no standards. There is Geneva Convention is now it's not a functional thing in in there, so we're not playing by those rules. Teaching by standards is important. Being self sufficient is important working out how you can cast your net wide and train the maximum number of people by doing the train the trainer program is, is hugely important. I think there's so many things we can learn there from what you've said. Um, so if anybody else was thinking about contributing uh, or possibly doing this as, as a role in the future, I think there's an awful lot of big points we, we've picked up from there. Just before we conclude, is there, is there anything else you would like to add at all that we've maybe missed at all? Anything, anything you can think of? I don't think so. It was a, Great honor to be uh, be here. No, and it's absolutely wonderful to 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 host you tonight. And uh, we're, I'm sure our listeners are going to get get a huge amount from it. So, so Johan, thank you so much again for for your time this evening. It has been absolutely fascinating to as as it always is, but it's been fascinating to hear about this um, this this unique experience. Um, our listeners, if you would like to learn any more uh, um, or ask any questions about the podcast. We'll uh, put a link on our LinkedIn page at www.tsgassociates.co.uk. So please go to the LinkedIn page for more information. Um, and we will be back very soon with another podcast with another unique experience and another unique individual. So thank you again for your time. And we'll look forward to talking again soon. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this edition of TSG Talk. We hope you found the content of benefit. Should you have any questions or require additional information, please visit tsgassociates.co.uk.